0: Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to church service here at Evergreen this morning. Glad to see you all here. Today we have our storytelling time and uh, we do this as a way to connect to each other and get to know each other better. And uh, I'm really excited to announce, announce a storyteller for the day, Karina Bickle. Come on up and uh, tell us a story.
1: Hi, I'm Karina. And I'll start with a short background of me. I'm from England and I came to America in 1999 as a young manufacturing engineer to work for one year in a piston factory in South Carolina. I loved it and decided to stay once my year was up and ended up designing spark plugs in Toledo, Ohio, studying for an MBA at Michigan and taking every opportunity to travel around this beautiful country. I moved to Seattle in 2007 for a career switch into management consulting, which led me into the tech industry here. I then met my wonderful husband, John. We got married seven months later, moved out to the country outside Woodenville, and soon had our two crazy but lovely kids, Alice and Oliver. Once we had kids, we felt isolated living so far out, so we moved to Mercer Island four years ago. We started coming to Evergreen two years ago, after many years attending Quest Church in Ballard. We love Mercer Island, especially the parks and beaches, and we also love to get out and about on adventures around the beautiful Pacific Northwest. And here's a picture of us, which you probably recognize down at Luther Burbank Park. So my story today is about something that happened in my work life 18 months ago. I had been working successfully as a senior program manager at a large tech company for seven years. One day when everything had seemingly been going just fine, I was told by my manager with virtually no explanation that I no longer had a job and that I would be escorted out of the building in five minutes. I left in complete shock with many unanswered questions. The following day, our HR rep told me my pay and medical benefits had stopped the day before and I would get no severance package. She had no information about why I had been let go. I was able to piece together over the next few days that four people at the same level in the broader team had been let go as the team had become top heavy in senior positions and they needed to cut costs. My world was completely shaken. For the first few days, I was in utter disbelief and managed to sleep only a couple of hours a night. I couldn't understand how a reputable company who I had given so much to over the previous seven years could treat people like that. I felt betrayed by the management team who I had worked with for years. I was providing for our family, and everything was taken away in an instant. We had no income, so I had to quickly sign up for unemployment benefit and cancel all our pre-booked doctor and dentist appointments while while scrambling to figure out what we would do for medical insurance. Cobra coverage would have used up most of my unemployment benefits, so we found the cheapest insurance available through Obamacare. I lost my job on a Thursday afternoon And on Saturday morning, it was Alice's fifth birthday party with an Alice in Wonderland theme that I had been planning and looking forward to for weeks. I was a sleep-deprived zombie, unable to take my mind off what had happened, but not wanting to tell people so I wouldn't take the fun out of the party. So here are some photos of the party. Thankfully, I had help from John's cousin getting the food and decorations ready. Otherwise, I, I don't know what would have happened. So over the next few weeks, I felt lost. I realized that part of my identity had been wrapped up in my work for almost two decades. I had enjoyed my work, been good at it, and spent a large chunk of my waking hours doing it. It was also one way I felt I was making the world a better place through the things I was designing and building. I had called the shots, planning my career path and deciding what I wanted to do. All of a sudden, that was gone. I had no say in what had happened to me, and no way to do anything about it. To fill the void in my my days, I jumped into my job search, increased my volunteering commitments, and did things I had dreamed of while working, such as meeting friends for coffee and walks in the middle of the day. I was initially excited to take on kid duties, such as preschool runs, after complaining for years that I didn't have enough time with the kids. However, suddenly I was trying to do all of this on top of looking for a job while barely sleeping at night and it was rough. For several weeks, I would lay awake at night with everything going over and over in my head, finally falling asleep only to awake multiple times in the night with my heart racing as it all came back to me. Having been an extremely optimistic and fun-loving person all my life, the spark had been zapped out of me. I realized now that I was feeling depressed. I could not stop thinking about what had happened and how unjust and wrong it was. My family was a great support, listening to me when I needed to talk, encouraging me and praying for me. I had lots of long chats on the phone with my mum in England, which helped. My friends found it hard to know what to say to me because I have always been so strong and successful in what I've put my mind to. Very few people realized what I was actually going through and I was conscious not to dwell on it too much, even though that was all I wanted to talk about. I also leaned on my faith, praying more than usual, and asking God to open up the next door for me. Despite knowing deep down that God had a plan for me, and knowing that what had happened was not a reflection on me as a person, I struggled to put my negative feelings aside. A big boost to my confidence came three months after I was laid off when I got to the last two of 80 applicants for a higher level position in a different group at the same company. That job didn't turn out to be the right one for me, but getting that far was just what I needed to assure me that I would find the right job. In the end, my prayers were answered and the right job found me through a recruiter on LinkedIn. Exactly six months after losing my job, one week before my unemployment benefit ran out, I started my current job at Amazon, where I have now been for just over a year. God did have a plan, as I am much happier in this job than my old one. Since I wouldn't have voluntarily left my old job as I was comfortable there, perhaps this was the only way it could have happened. Here are some photos of Alice and Oliver visiting my office for Bring Your Kids to Work Day last summer and to see the view from the roof top deck, which is pretty spectacular and I get to enjoy every day from my desk. When I asked Alice and Oliver last night what I do at work, they said, I help sellers go to meetings, eat, and walk up 11 flights of stairs, which is a pretty accurate description most days. (laughs) So what did I learn through all of this? First, I learned to not take things for granted and to listen to God even when things seem to be going fine, leaning on him as much in the good times as in the bad times. It is so easy to rely on our own strength when things are going well, but that is, um, but that is when, when God wants us to recognize that our blessings come from him and give him control in the good times too. Second, I learned that my job is not part of my true identity. My identity is in my relationship with others and with Christ, and I have been focusing on growing these relationships and relishing in them. I am trying to spend more quality time with family and friends, although admittedly, it is still a constant struggle to balance that with the never-ending demands of work. Third, I learned that you don't know what people are going through and how they are feeling. I try harder now to truly listen to how people are Getting beyond the superficial conversations and being more patient and forgiving. So here I am on the other side of the hardest few months of my life, stronger for what happened to me, grateful to God for guiding me through to a better place, and looking forward to what else He has in store for me in this awesome adventure of life. Thank you for listening to my story. <clears throat> And this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 14 to 21 from Ephesians chapter 3 in the New American Standard Bible. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in christ jesus to all generations forever and ever amen the word of the lord
0: often when we hear these stories i think Um, I imagine all of us are kind of reminded that people are going through stuff, and uh, it's important to check in and to not make assumptions and just be kind and generous to each other. We never know uh, what we're carrying on our backs. Uh, We are in our series today in the book of Ephesians, and uh, we're going to talk about this idea of requisite power, power that's necessary, And I think most of us know power is necessary. I know that I've wanted power. I've been after power. But how do you get it? How does power come about in our life? In ways that we need. I'm not talking about power for its own sake or just to accumulate it, but necessary power. How do we come about it? And the idea that the scripture is talking about today and that I have personally landed on as a point of conviction for myself is that... Weak often equals strong. You know, do you know how life works? You know, we're all trying to figure out what we have to do. What's the formula? What's the input to get the output that you want? And we all have our own maps of the world. And mine has been changing, and I can't believe I actually uh, am here, but at this point in my life, I don't believe that strong equals strong. I just don't see that as playing out in the world. And I don't just see that in the Bible, but I see it in life, I see it in stories, I see it in science, I see it everywhere. All around me, I see how weakness leads to strength. And strength often leads to weakness. There's a kind of paradox to life. And there's lots of paradoxes in life. And part of life is, I think, Confronting these paradoxes and coming to grips with it. And uh, at first, we try to twist and bend what we see. And then at some point, we realize we're the ones that have been bending and twisting. And really, the truth sort of stares at us in the face, and then we conform to it. And one of these big truths in life is that weak equals strong. I'll give you a couple of examples that I thought about as I was thinking on this uh, these last couple of weeks. Uh, Some of you read this week that scientists accidentally, and that's the operative word there, accidentally discovered an enzyme that eats plastics. Like that's huge. We have been after this sucker for a long time. There are thousands of acres of plastic garbage floating around in our oceans just to start. And we've been scratching our heads as to how to, how to recycle that? How do you take care of that? How do you not let it be this glaring, visible emblem of human failure and negligence? Well, we happened upon a solution accidentally. And uh, if you Google this, uh, you'll, the top three articles, this is what I did, top three articles that you read, talks about how great this is. But the point that the authors of these articles are making is this is yet another accidental scientific discovery, as all good scientific discoveries are. It's serendipitous. And I see, at this point, I see no reason whatsoever to distinguish between the word luck and serendipity, or grace, or God's will, it's just all wrapped up in this idea that the universe, I think it's God, I don't know what your word choice is, but God really rules the day. And he is, he's the engine driving humanity forward. The moral progress and breakthroughs we have, the scientific discoveries, the ways the human narrative has shifted over time to bring us to this point today where we are actually more moral than we've ever been in the history uh, as a race. We have less violence as a species than ever in our history as a species. How do we get here? How do we get to this place of civility and compassion relative to where we've been and I'm going to tell you, it's not because we were deliberate and competent and we, through our incredible intellectualism and rationale, brought ourselves here. That's just not the way the history should be written. That's not the truth. The truth is we got here by a force other than, than ourselves from ourselves. And I don't know how you can be a thinking person, how you can be a reading person, or an honest person and come to any other conclusion, religious or otherwise. Human progress is a story of weakness equaling strength. I thought also about uh, certain biographies that uh, I love just as a fellow pastor. I thought about. Tim Keller, my favorite church planner and pastor, uh, retired now from New York City, and I think about this all the time. He went through this church planners assessment center that I went through, and I passed it. I got got the green light. I remember that, and I was proud of myself. And you know what Tim Keller did? He failed. He failed for the reasons that he would still fail today. His spouse, we call this spousal support, his spouse didn't support him being a church planner. It was going to be a parachute project, which is way harder to plant a church that you're sort of parachuted into the town than in a town that you grew up in, right? And they said he doesn't know how to preach. Those three reasons will still cause you to fail an assessment center today. They failed him. They went on to other people, and nobody said yes. The ones that passed, they came back to Back to Tim Keller, and he went on to plant one of the most beautiful churches, in my opinion, as far as church plants go, and they've planted hundreds of other churches as a result. And it's just amazing for me to have watched this guy. He started in 1989 to finish well. So few leaders finish well, and uh, he did it, but not by human effort. If human beings could have decided what would have happened to him, we never would have seen Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I always think about that, that many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord who determines his steps. I also thought about Jack Welsh, the CEO, ex-CEO of GE, and how he spent three years with all the resources the world had to offer to identify and groom and select his replacement. He took three years to do it. He came down to 27 candidates that he chose from, the best of the best in the world. And then the person he chose didn't do so well. You know the story. And then they replaced that person with another person, and they didn't do so well either. And if you own G-Stock, you know how that went. Accidents seem to lead to fruit just as much or more than our deliberate attempts how does this work how does this work another example i thought of is the office how many of you are fans of the office the american office one of my favorite scenes in this show is these two main characters uh michael and dwight okay They are trying to save their branch from being shut down. It's either their branch or another branch. They drive over. uh, They're in uh, Pennsylvania and Scranton. They drive up to uh, New York City, Westchester, to go surprise, persuade their CFO and figure out what's going on. But he's not home. So the whole episode is them waiting outside all day trying to talk the CFO into not shutting down their branch. That's the whole episode, except the CFO is not there, and then uh, the CFO had decided to shut down the other branch, and they've been trying to call them to tell them this great news, but they're so determined on getting this done that they won't answer their phones. And then finally, they check voicemail when it's all dark and they're ready to give up, and then Dwight says, Michael, listening to the voicemail, he says, Michael, Michael, we're not getting shut down. They're getting shut down. We did it. We did it. And they both start screaming, we did it. We did it. And they celebrate. And then they turn to each other and they say, how do we do it? <laughs> I love that scene because that's the story of my life. I'm always celebrating things that I did that I had nothing to do with. <laughs> you know, I, I'm here today and I'm, I'm just setting a record here every day, because I've never been at a church longer than four years. I'm six years this year. And so every day is a record for me, and you know how I got here? I didn't get the other job I wanted. True story. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Paul says to the Corinthian church, I planted, Apollos my friend watered, But God caused the growth. Neither is he who plants or the one who waters anything, but only God who causes the growth. And so really, you know, how does my personal growth happen? How does human growth happen? The progression forward, this place we're at today, how did it happen? Do you really, looking back, believe that it was us Can you say that? If you look at yourself and your own life story, can you say it was you? Really, honestly, was it you? I think the pivotal turns in our life, the crucial moments, conversations, and the contacts we've made, so many things in life are accidental that there is no honest way to look back and say it was me. And if it wasn't me, that means collectively it wasn't us. And if it wasn't us now, it wasn't us then either. That means all of human history really is a collection of happy accidents without which we would never get here in the first place. Tell me a story of your life, any story, and I can tell you. I can reframe it where you're not the hero, Tell me your best accomplishment, and I'll show you how it was not you. Easy to do. We just have to talk about it. We just have to talk through the details, and you'll see that it was not you. Paul asks the church. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you act as if you hadn't? So this is a moment for you to decide if really you are the author of your life, you have to decide if you deserve the credit. And then, to take it one step further, if it's not you, if it really was somebody else or something else that forces beyond yourself, to whom or to what do you give thanks? How do you, just as a human being, you know, you get something, you got to respond. You're on the receiving end of what we would call grace, an undeserved, unmerited, unsustained favor towards you? How do you respond? And so Christians say, you know, we believe this force, this engine that's driving, the sum of the accidents, underneath the accidents lies a benevolent, benevolent being. This being is personal and knowable. It's the author of life. And so to this being, we acknowledge And we give thanks. And more than just thanks, we give our trust for the future, not just thanks for the past. We place the locus of authority, authorship, outside of ourselves. It's not me. But I submit, I trust, I worship, I fear, I give myself over. And that's not necessarily emotional but it's logical what do you do with that perspective that we ourselves didn't bring ourselves here we give credit to god and if you're not a christian here what do you do with that equation how do you complete it how do you bring closure to it the bible says that our joy is made complete when we give thanks So we'll see, uh, and I believe this, that weakness leads to, weak leads to strong, that failure leads to success. And Karina shared that today, a firing led to uh, a better job. And we know it's not about the job, because that job can go too, right? What is it about? Humility, to sum it up, leads to exaltation. There is a power the engine to drive life forward, to drive your personal self and the history of our world forward. And the way, that's what I'm submitting to you today, the way to experience, to access this power is to admit weakness. And in your weakness, open your mouth and ask. Because that's what humility does. It allows you to ask. So um, A way to kind of put this in equation form is there's a kind of power that you need. And the passage says this power that really is undergirding the power is what we will call love, that it's not just a power, but it's a love. It's a personal um, relationship. And that gives you more power to accomplish more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. Okay. So what I want to do today is kind of uh, quickly go through uh, all the uh, verses, all the key phrases, because uh, this, we've come to one of those places uh, in Paul's letters where you don't have to edit anything out. There is nothing extraneous. There's no weird name in there, nothing specific. It's just a beautiful, generic <clears throat> uh, benediction of sorts, and so it's kind of worth going through. Okay, first, I bow my knees... Before the Father. This is key. If you were getting this letter in this time, you would understand that normally you don't bow your knees to pray. In those days, you stood to pray. And so we have several times in the New Testament people talk about standing before God, right? And the Pharisees, when he's praying, he's standing. And uh, when you bow, though, You are in dire straits. You are desperate. There's a strong, guttural emotion and a state of desperation that you're expressing. This is humility. It's not just petitioning. It's not just making a case, but it's begging. It's playing to somebody's mercies. It's throwing yourself uh, onto the mercies of the court. I bow my knees before the Father. So there's a kind of pleading Acknowledging there. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Uh, this this uh, phrase modifies the term coming later, which is father, or, or that came before father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And uh, it's talking about, we get a hint of it, we'll get to it more fully later, uh, but it's this idea that God is really... The source. It's from whom. He is the source of all. He's everything. If it doesn't come from him, it's not important. It doesn't even exist. It doesn't matter. It's meaningless. And this is the Bible's uh, assertion that God is the source of all things. There's nothing that exists outside of God. That this source that he would grant you and this word grant is depicting the idea of grace, that it's a gift, that all the good things in your life are from him. It's not a result of your works, but it is a gift of God. It's, you could call it luck, you can call it serendipity, it doesn't matter what you call it, what it is is a granting from God according to the riches of his glory and that's the word right there the riches of his glory glory is the word uh, weight my favorite translation of the word glory is matter that it talks about the physical substance and until unless it has physical substance it doesn't matter so only matter matters and that's god only god matters All glory is from him. There is an unbearable lightness of being apart from his glory. He's the source of all things. To be strengthened with power. And here's what I've been uh, unpacking for us in the introduction power comes to us, it does not come from us. You need power, and the intuitive thing to do is to look within. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. You don't look within. You ask. You open yourself up to outside of you, beyond yourself. To yourself, you admit you don't have anything. And with that admission, you ask outside of yourself for the power that you need, the requisite power. Through his spirit in the inner man, the end product that we're after, the growth, it's really mysterious because it's involving inner things. It's deep. It's not just shallow and visible. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And this is really the presence, the knowing of love in you. That's where the Bible says power comes from, from being loved. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints Now, when it says, with all the saints, it adds a sense of timelessness to this truth. That from the very, very beginning, it was about love. And you can not only look back, but you can project that forward and say, for all of time, it will always just be about love. I was telling Susie this week, I said, Susie, you know, the only things that people are really ultimately willing to pay for is love. They're all, we're all just buying love. And she said, first thing, not no joke, she said, what about my shoes? And I said, yeah, that's you loving yourself, trying to future-proof your feet from the elements. That's you loving your feet, loving how you feel in it, loving how other people may look at you. It's about love. You're buying love. And love is worth that much, I guess. Shoot, I just talked myself into paying for those shoes, didn't I? Um But it's with all the saints. Always been about love. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Again, the emphasis here is that love comes to us from beyond. It's not knowable, right? That's beyond knowledge. That means that it's not learned, but it's really a breaking in. It's a revelation, You are not the source of it. If you search yourself, you will not find love. You find conditional affection. You find gratitude. You find these things, but you won't find real love. Real love is what God is. And though we are made in his image, we are not God. And therefore, we are not love. Love comes from beyond us. And that's what this phrase says, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This idea of love, yes, it's foreign to us, but we're made for it. Because what is our nature here? Our nature is to be filled up, meaning that we are empty. We don't have it. You at your best is an empty vessel. You at your better self is filled with God and you don't have to be religious to believe this. We see this, like if you think about Taoism or Buddhism, you know, they stop at this idea of emptying yourself. They want you to be empty, void of the ego. I was just watching a documentary on Gary Shanling and he has one tattoo. And it was a tattoo of a circle drawn on the back of his neck because he was so aware of how full of himself he is. And he wanted to be empty of himself. But that's not what the Bible says. Bible doesn't stop at emptiness. It goes all the way to filling. It says not only empty yourself. Emptying yourself is just the means to get filled with Christ. Because you will be filled with something is what the Bible teaches. Right? And then finally, the benediction portion. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Now this is grace playing itself out. He is able to do far more abundantly. That's just bad English right there. <laughs> but it makes a point. Beyond all that we ask or think. We can't even ask for it. We don't. If you sum up all our asking, it doesn't lead to what our life is today. You know, this is an important thought to remember because you look out and it's really easy to judge people. It's really easy to say, well, they brought that upon themselves. Well, what about you? Do you think your life is just equal to what you have brought upon yourself? Do you think your life is what you deserve or have even asked for or even have known to ask for? You know, it's easy to do that. I do that all the time. I mean, especially like this is so such a this is kind of low-hanging fruit for storytellers but driving stories, you know? It's so easy to judge when you're driving. I mean, somebody explained this one to me. Why when I'm walking I'm a wonderful human being and then I'm driving and I just am awful. When does that how I don't know. I don't know what it is about driving. I've read a couple of theories, but I don't know. It doesn't quite, quite satisfy me. But I assume they, they are just awful human beings. <laughs> and I'm wonderful. My thinking, my decision-making, my driving, it's just wonderful. Oh, man, they should have a special honk for me just to congratulate me, <laughs> you know? Just a thumbs-up honk. but you remember this you can't judge people you really i mean i don't mean you shouldn't i mean you really can't because none of us live the life we deserve it's all beyond that we ask or think right according to the here it is the power that works within us it's not from us but it's within us that's the engine of our life this power this is the, I think it's the spirit of God in us. You know, when the Bible talks about God breathing his spirit into us, talks about us as a temple and the spirit as this rushing wind that comes in and somehow animates us, brings us up out of the clay, the dust from which we've been made. You know, some of, maybe some of that is literal. Maybe some of that is explaining a truth that's even more true than what could be literally true. You know, I I think one day we'll all understand how this idea of spirit animating us works. You know, we have theories right now, but that's it right here, according to this power, this spirit, this love that resides in us and starts expressing itself through the story of our life and we bear fruit, we somehow reflect back to God who he is and how he is, reflect to each other this truth to all generations, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. All back to Christ, our collective testimony, and it will always be this way. It has been about God. It will always be about God. And then notice the ending, the word is amen. And it's a word that means so be it. This will always be this way. It will has been this way. It should be this way. It's a way of, releasing sort of submitting under the truth of what was just said is the word amen so when you know somebody prays and you say amen you're saying so be it let it be i submit myself to this request and whatever happens to me it will happen to me so there it is the passage this beautiful story that depicts the necessary nature of humility Uh, I was thinking about how to uh, capture this for you, and this is a little bit cliche, but I think it's um, effective. An empty jar. We're born empty, and then we get filled with a mixture of things, and then this thing that we call life is us trying to empty ourselves, and then we can be filled with the things that are good and right, and true, that bear fruit, that are sustainable, that give life to others and to ourselves. And the way to do that is we get filled, and then we pour ourselves back out, and that's the cycle. We receive, we pour out. We receive, we pour out. Uh, I want to end with a story. Uh, It's a personal story, and it's one that's live right now, and so I don't have all the Uh, categories I'll have, you know, five years from now or something, Uh, but this is uh, sort of long time in the works for me. Uh, So let me start outside in. So one of the things that I've sort of, uh, I felt like God put his finger on and I began to feel extra attentive to this trait about me is I'm always looking for deals. I've wasted so much money saving money. It's really a sad, sad, you know, way I've lived my life. And uh, I'm not sure how it got in me, but there it is. And I hate to live into the Asian cliche, but there it is also. Just saving money, you know? Being cheap. And uh, as I prayed about it, I mean, in earnest, I've, I've been annoyed by it, you know, the course of my whole life. But recently I've been just, I've paused and I said, what is going on here? Why is this such a driving force in my life? And what I learned is that Beyond the um, the surface level of it, underneath it, there is a fear. I have this fear. If I don't get a good deal, that means I'm being taken. And that's the feeling, that the universe is cruel and violent and doesn't care. It doesn't see. It It doesn't have my back. And it's just trying to get from me, not give to me. So you can call it what you want, it's a scarcity mentality, it's a survival mentality, but uh, I didn't feel safe, and I was trying to make myself feel safe from a kind of, and here's the classic thing that I go back to again, abandonment. It's a fear of abandonment is why I was trying to save money. Um, And then it got a little bit deeper or sideways a little bit. It's a parallel thing is I realized as I was thinking about abandonment that I am one of those people, I'm super secure about myself. And I see this in one of my kids. Just everywhere she and I show up, we just think we're legit. Like, we're fine. We're not worried about ourselves. However, to that extent, I am insecure in relationships. And so it's a kind of a paradox thing for me. Like, I'm very secure about who I am, but I always think you're going to hate me. That I can at any moment do something, not do something, say, not say, you know, give off something or not, whatever. I can just give you legitimate reason to bail. I don't know why. It doesn't even have to be literal. You could still be in my life, but emotionally you're like, eh, I'm done believing in that guy, enough something. And this, this struggle is 44 years long, as far as I can tell. I've been with this for a long time. But this passage tells me that God's love is actually longer and broader and higher and deeper than 44 years of struggle for me. And this is, this is my comfort as I was praying about this. And I just thought, you know, if that's true, if, if really underneath this ridiculous thing in my life is fear that I won't be loved, how do I get this love in me? And the passage says it's humility. By admitting that you have been struggling for 44 years, by admitting the pervasive nature of this struggle, by admitting the depth to which this thing grips you, You're beginning already to obtain that power that's not in you. Now you're giving up on yourselves. You're not tripping over yourself. You're getting over yourself, and you're saying, it's not about me. So the way to access this power is through humility and through this power, I have love. And then there will be fruit in my life that's more than I can ask or think or imagine, and when that happens, as I see that happening, I give glory to God forever and ever, and all around me, including me, will say Amen. And that's how life works. So let's um, read this. This this is what uh, this is from Second Corinthians twelve. This is what Paul has learned uh, for himself about this love, power, humility. In his life, he said, and he asked, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Will you bow your heads with me? <clears throat> Lord, I stand before people just like, my, just like me, all struggling, all uh, making it day by day, season to season. And so I lift all of us up to you and ask that our weaknesses be made perfect in your strength. Do this work, whatever this work looks like in each of our lives, this work of humbling us, of causing us to open our mouths and ask of you rather than of ourselves. To look beyond ourselves to each other in love and compassion, not in judgment and superiority. To uh, trust you, for you alone, our power and love and we mere empty vessels. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.